What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior to get control of your thought processes, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, in episode 26. Last week, I had a conversation with Mr. Thomas O'Connell of Moby, and we talked all about his bike sharing scheme and micro mobility in general. This week, I'm going to talk a little bit of, I'm going to carry it on just slightly insofar as talking about opportunities in retail around um, um, curb space and parking of bicycles and things like that. But I also am going to answer a question that I got from somebody on building houses uh, or your own house or whatever. So I'm going to go into a couple of those things this week. Before I do, I think I'm just going to go into what I've normally do, give you a few updates on what things are going on. And um, first of all, it is Sunday, the 25th of October. The clocks went back last night, so I got an extra hour in bed. actually forgot that it was happening and uh, woke up wondering, why am I so alert uh, first thing in the morning? And on top of that, it's a bank holiday. So when you're listening to this tomorrow morning, uh, being Monday, the 26th, just have a thought for me back in Ireland where it is a bank holiday and so um, a lot of people are probably relaxing and possibly not listening to this today as they normally would. Um, Podcast is coming from home. This is day four of the lockdown, the national lockdown that the Irish government called four days ago. We're going to be in this thing for the next six weeks and uh, it's not as strict as the one that we had earlier in the year. That is for sure. I, um, I've just noticed it when I'm out and about. Uh, I've noticed the amount of cars in the morning on the traffic. When I, earlier on in the year, back in March and April, I used to go running early in the morning. And um, I can remember crossing the, the bridge uh, that, that crosses the main road where I live. And there would be just no cars at all. There would be checkpoints for the police to stop anyone kind of coming in and checking why, what they're there for and stuff. And uh, this year, just the, the streams of traffic, I mean, it's a little bit lighter than it has been, but there is definitely a lot of people heading off to work that are either ignoring it or just the whole thing is, is just less strict than it was previously. Um, anyway, I'm turning this lockdown to my advantage. I've um, doubled down on my fitness and diet goals, and I'm hoping to kind of achieve some goals between now and the 1st of December when this all comes to an end. Want to give a quick shout out to a new listener that we have in Brazil, Paulo, who sent me a nice message saying that um, he's glad that he found it. And uh, I actually know Paulo, who used to work here in Ireland a couple of years ago, but he didn't seem to realize that I had started this podcast. So welcome, Paulo. Nice to have you tuning in from Brazil. And um, on the topic of joining the uh, the membership, um, we're currently at 235 members in the Behind the Facade community. Paolo, if you're listening, you should probably check the Facebook group out yourself and join up as a member if you want to send any questions or something to me on the topics that we might cover in uh, each week's podcast. So I thought I'd also mention, guys, this is an interesting one. I'm I'm actually working with a performance coach, a guy called Jean-Pierre de Villiers, and um, he's an athlete and a um, kind of public speaker, motivational kind of guy. 
and um, I've signed up for a coaching program with him that'll take the next three months. And he, my stretch goal that I'm going to achieve with JP is a um, to actually write a book. And the intention is to have a book either published or certainly ready to be published by the end of January. And so that is, I'm hoping that you, the community, will hold me accountable on that because um, accountability is everything. And the book is going to be pretty much like what these podcasts are like. I'm going to cover um, mindset, discipline, the lessons I've learned over 25 years of real estate investment and development. And I'm going to bring all of the kind of the good stuff into the book um, that I go into about emotion and ego and the the six ores. And in fact, as I've been working on all this kind of stuff, the six ores has actually become the seven ores or possibly the eight ores. So anyway, I'm hoping that you guys will enjoy it. If you're interested in signing up for the book or for early release, and I'll probably go and sign a lot of copies for anyone who wants them, um, send, well, first of all, make sure that you are a subscriber to the newsletter. As you guys know, I don't really send out many newsletters, but I build up a list of names on the email so that when the book is live and things like that, I can make you aware of it and um, so the newsletter is the place to do that you'll find the newsletter sign up if you go to gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go and also guys if you would let me know if you'd be so good as to let me know any aspects of the the last 26 episodes that i have done that you find most interesting or most helpful and uh, i'll make sure that i include them in the book if you think they are worth including so um, another update I just thought I'd bring you up to date on was that I was at a, uh, I chaired a panel discussion earlier on this uh, this week and it was a, an event organized by Brendan Quinn, uh, Brendan Quinn Events. Now Brendan is a listener and so shout out to Brendan who organizes these great events, online events on property and things like that. So I had a panel of I think it was five commercial experts, guys in the field that are you know investing in different things and managing different aspects of the market and i asked them all their take on covid what they saw happening in the market all of these various things and where do they what do they see in the future some predictions and stuff like that it was an interesting discussion and you guys should check it out i'll probably put a link in the show notes below but one of the most important things i found was there was an auctions update and there was a guy coming on and he was giving us his insights and this is mostly now for the uk economy but he noticed a few things that um, that were st- stand out for him. And first of all, he mentioned that um, banking uh, financing rates have started to increase uh, in the UK. That is now that prior to this, you could get a mortgage at a rate that was below two percent. And he says that that has now crept up above three percent. So there's been a slippage there. And he said that he has noticed not so much price dropping, but he has noticed that there have been a couple of deals not going through and that there is conversations and negotiations happening between buyers and sellers. He said that if you go back a couple of months, there would be simply no discussion. It would be, that's my price, take it or leave it. Now there is discussion going on around the price. The general consensus from all of the guests that I was, uh, or the panelists that I was interviewing, were that there is some distressed pricing going to be expected, not right away, but in the coming months. A number of people had already indicated, 
a couple of things. First of all, there have been some rent collection slowdowns. There have been, I, I actually read recently that two thirds of commercial landlords in the UK um, did not receive their rent um, for the third quarter of this year. And uh, the exception probably being logistics, which is still performing quite well. But it's very interesting to see that just as this, as I mentioned before, uh, quite early on in my in this podcast, um, there's always a lag between the property market and the, the kind of the main economy and the property market lags because banks don't come after people until a couple of months of non-payment and things like that. And there's been this period of time where we've all been kind of trapped with, you know, coronavirus and the lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. And that has caused a bit of a delay in response from the banks. But if people are unable to pay rent, um, then then the landlord is unable to make the point payments on the mortgage. And the banks will only give you so much forbearance on that kind of stuff before they start coming in and making sort of difficult demands and stuff. And so I think we're going to start seeing that start to happen probably in the first quarter of next year. I think it could drag on longer. You're naturally, if we're still in the middle of this pandemic, the government are going to be asking everyone to kind of, you know, show some forbearance and and don't be unkind and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is that nobody is going to forgive loans. If you've borrowed money from the bank, the bank are very much of the view that, sorry, that's your problem. You shouldn't have borrowed it if you didn't think you could pay it back. And the people who are paying the rent, who rented the shop, are going to turn around and say to the owner of the house, of the property that they're renting that, sorry, you know, it's not our fault that coronavirus came along and shut our business. We didn't shut it down. The government shut it down. So I can see some difficulties ahead in that regard. And I do think it's going to be an opportunity for people who are waiting in the wings, looking for opportunities to buy. One other update is Recotech. It's a, an event on the innovation of real estate and all that kind of stuff. It's in the Nordic markets. And so this event normally takes place in person in Helsinki, Finland every year. This year, I think it's going to be an entirely virtual event and I've been asked to speak at it. So that my, my talk is on the 18th of November and it's a keynote on the office, um, on the new normal and whether or not we can expect the office to come back. So if you want to go and check out um, that I'll, I'll put some details in the show notes below, but you can always find any of the events that I'm speaking at or any of the events that I'm participating in on my website. If you go to gavinjgallagher.com forward slash events, you'll find all of the events that I am involved in there. Should be an interesting talk. And so um, I think obviously I'll be uh, getting the, uh, the audio and the video of that and I'll be putting it out on my content. And actually, something else I just wanted to bring up. So I mentioned this earlier, uh, the bike sharing discussion that I had with Thomas last week has led to some thoughts on opportunities and in particular, curbside parking outside retail. As if you're if you're thinking about most shops on a high street, most of them, you know, you don't really uh, unless, you know, it, certainly in a high street location, you're not going to be allowed to pull up outside the door and run in and collect something and then run back out to your car and drive on. Usually the high street is too busy for that. But now that we're in this COVID situation and a lot of people are moving to online business and stuff, a lot of these guys that have got shops and retail and restaurants and stuff, 
a lot of these people are forced are being forced to enter into an online orders business and so it's essential for those guys either to do delivery in which case they need access to areas for people to pull up with bikes you know collection couriers and whatever or they need to be able to allow their customers to pull up outside either on foot or on bike or in car or whatever so i do think that that is going to become something that becomes very important in the coming um months and particularly in the coming years as everyone starts to move to online and if it's click and collect or whatever i had a very sort of painful experience at the beginning of the week it's um it was my nephew's uh birthday recently and we organized to get him a present and you have to do this click and collect now because of the lockdown and stuff like that this is pre-lockdown um, I we just kind of put in an order quickly before the lockdown came in so that we could kind of get a present up sent up to him and I had to spend 40 minutes in a line of people uh, that were actually had had clicked uh, had basically bought online and this was the collection that they were doing so I was standing in a huge line for 40 minutes waiting to get to the top of the line so they could bring out the gifts that I had bought for my nephew and um that just shows you the popularity of click and click, but also it shows you some of the drawbacks of it. The fact that you all have to, you know, the collection thing is going to be a problem for a lot of people, especially if you can't find parking, if you have to walk miles to kind of stand in a line and all of that. Speaking of the impact on retail, I've read a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal this week, and it was talking about how retailers, this is in the US particularly, but like what happens in the US filters into the rest of the world. So you're almost guaranteed to see this. Retailers are now starting to push back on landlords and they're starting to insist that turnover rents become a thing. And I don't know if you guys are aware what a turnover rent is, but typically what a landlord does is they just agree in rent and say it's a thousand a month or ten thousand a month whatever it might be you pay this kind of fixed monthly rental sum but in the case of turnover rent it is actually based on the performance of the shop itself so if your shop earns you know a hundred thousand a year and you have a turnover rent of say four percent or something it would mean that you pay four thousand um you know pounds or whatever it is um if if the turnover rent is 15 percent, you pay fifteen thousand pounds and so there's you know depending on the location there will be different turnover rent agreements and stuff but usually it is a sum that's not dissimilar to what would be the market rate but it just means that on busy periods when it's really really if it's a really active location you'll have a higher turnover and the rent will be higher but then at this time, you know, during COVID, obviously rents are much, much lower. And so the rent would be much, much lower. And it would mean that the landlord is tied to the retailer's performance directly. And that would mean that your, your, you know, your rent can go up or down. And I experienced this myself when I was living in Spain, as I was talking to a lot of the tenants going, trying to get them into my shopping complex that I had built there was this conversation going on about turnover rent and what I was trying to do was organize a base rent so there would be a fixed sum that was guaranteed to me and then there would be a turnover a, a kind of component of it would be turnover and the purpose of that is that you kind of get a little bit of a top up when it's busy and then during the rest of the year you can kind of rely on a minimum amount of rent 
And um, it's not a bad idea in seasonal places, but obviously you could be devastated now by this COVID thing where the, the you know the tenant's rent uh, could, could drop to zero. Unless you have that base component, the tenant's rent could theoretically drop to zero. And so I don't know how people are going to value a property that has this fluctuating rent. Uh, so it's going to be a difficult thing, but it definitely it's the new battleground for retail uh, because retailers I don't think are going to be prepared to sign a lease that has this kind of risk attached to it now um, having experienced what we've gone through in the last six months but typically landlords now uh, I have a hearing in the US according to this Wall Street Journal article landlords are now pushing back and they're actually seeking a cut of online sales from the retailers now tell me how that is going to work because if you're a if you're a landlord and you're, you know, you're renting your store to Apple, how do you justify having a portion of their online stuff when they have shops all over the world and they have this huge ecosystem? It's going to be an interesting one. But um, anyone with uh, any kind of online click and collect kind of thing, I think there's going to be some struggles in the next couple of years. Well, there's already been struggles, obviously, so we're not at the end of that yet. And what this has led to, and this is where I'm going to talk about opportunities in retail, is that the stock market prices of these companies that specialize in retail, and there's some huge ones out there, um, but they have collapsed in value. I mean, really, to a huge extent. There's a company called Unibale Rodamco Westfield. And for those of you in the UK, you'll be familiar with the Westfield uh, Shopping Mall, which is this huge shopping mall outside London. And um, it is a huge place. It's very sort of high quality. And the company that owns that is actually a huge company that owns lots of assets all over Europe and stuff. But its shares have collapsed 80% in value since January. And so it is now trading at a fraction of the actual net asset value of the company. So there's most definitely an opportunity there to step in and buy something that is cheaper than its value but then the question is how long before this bounces back and the only thing I mean I'm not going to predict when this is all going to bounce back at these prices but if it's a good company then the price probably will bounce back and you just got to be able to sort of sit and wait it out and so anyone who is sitting on a bit of cash who is thinking about um, you know growing your 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 nest egg and trying to find that deposit that you want to buy your first property with Perhaps this is something uh, worth worth considering. Um, and just one thing that I remember, and this is all, I always try to remind myself of this when you're in this situation, certainly at COVID. I was around in uh, September 11th, 2001. So that's, you know, it's actually 19 years ago. And at the time when the Twin Towers were knocked to the ground, and I mean, it was just, it was a massive shock to the system. I was actually on vacation in Barbados. It was, on, um, it was on my honeymoon, believe it or not. And the first day of the honeymoon was the 9-11 the attacks. And um, as I was sitting there in the hotel watching this, I could remember them all talking about, you know, the airplanes, every single airplane in the sky around America was grounded. And after that, for months, people were not flying. The airline industry nearly collapsed again. People were talking about no one ever buying um, shares in airline companies and in fact a company that was based in East Point Business Park um, I think it was American Airlines they actually pulled out right after that 
and um, they left the building almost altogether um, all because of 9-11 so airline stocks devastated uh, people stopped flying people started talking about high-rise buildings not being ever you know um, uh, rented again because nobody ever wants to sit on the upper floors when something like that can happen and all of this was you know the kind of the general sentiment around the market for quite a while and then lo and behold a couple of years later we're all traveling like crazy flying everywhere it it's you know your people just slip back to their habits and i believe covid-19 is going to be something similar and i did have a discussion this week with some um big agents that i work with and um, we were talking about the office market in general we were talking about the the sentiment of the big occupiers the guys that are renting you know huge offices and things like that and the general view from these agents that i was speaking with was that there is going to be uh, you know a slowdown for sure but most of these guys that are you know looking that need large amounts of space their view is that this is a little bit like 9-11 and that they're just going to sit back and wait for it to pass they're going to get everyone to work from home and then as soon as things return to normal, they get everyone back. They're not going to spend, you know, millions on re reconfiguring their offices because it could just be this short term thing. And in a year's time or 18 months time, we're all back to normal and the buildings will just go back to the way it was. So just something to bear in mind, guys, this is it's always the way it is with the markets. you got to remember that the sentiment always makes it feel much more negative than it is and if you just sit back and are patient and just wait your you know bide your time the market will come back on to the next thing a few episodes back i spoke about sustainability and this week i was reading about ireland's first nzeb building and if you're wondering what nzeb is it's net zero energy building and um, this this building is, is built on the keys in dublin and it's, uh, you know, net zero energy building basically means that the total amount of energy consumed in a year is equal or less than the total amount of renewable energy that is produced on the site in a year. And so it has, you know, solar panels and all of that photovoltaic um uh, panels on the roof and they ha probably have you know um, groundwater and there's all of these different things that you can do that kind of create the ability to to create energy and it also emits far fewer gas emissions and so one of the reasons i just wanted to go quickly into this is because i definitely think we're moving in that direction and i think covid19 is actually going to be even more of a driver even though our eyes are currently not on sustainability because of COVID and the, you know, the, the crisis that we're currently trying to deal with, there is nevertheless a 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from the real estate industry. And as I said in one of my talks um, that I gave earlier in the year, that makes the real estate industry a very easy target. And I think it's even more so today. Just last week, we were looking at our budget in the Irish market, uh, the Irish government announced the, the budget for 2021. And they, uh, it's just, it's hard to believe, they announced that they would be borrowing eight times what they had to borrow last year in order to fund all of the 
damage done by COVID and all of the measures they're having to bring in and all of the so support packages they're having to, to put out there to support people who've lost their jobs, to support businesses that they don't go under and all this. And if you just think about it, like politi politicians are in this impossible position. They've got to, you know, they've got to help everyone, but they also have to find a way to pay for all of this. And they also have to remain popular enough to continue to get voted into office. So they can't go and implement very, very unpopular things. Now, I know back in 2008, we start, the Irish had to go through this thing called austerity. And it was a pretty difficult couple of years where everyone had to pay more tax and all that. But we eventually got out of it. But it made the, you know, the government at the time very, very unpopular. And so few people that are going to be so unpopular make those unpopular decisions. And what usually happens is that you basically kick the problem down the road for somebody else to deal with at a later date. And you just continue to see that happening over and over again. And basically what it means is that, you know, my kids or my grandchildren will actually be the ones picking up the tab for this unless somebody comes along and says, right, we're going to double taxes. And it's, it's not a popular thing. But what I am starting to believe we're going to see is that things like uh, emissions on buildings are going to be taxed. Uh, and here's just a small kind of, uh, uh, you know, example, not not related to buildings, but cigarettes. And in the budget now recently, the, the government decided to add an additional 50 cent to a packet of 20 cigarettes. So it is now about I'm going to use dollars as a as a comparative figure here. It's about $16.50 to buy a packet of 20 cigarettes now here in Ireland. And that sounds very expensive, but it, we're actually the third most expensive in the world. The most expensive cigarettes in the world, the highest tax on cigarettes in the world is Australia. And in Australia, it costs uh, 25 US dollars to buy a packet of, of cigarettes. And New Zealand uh, is the second most expensive and it costs the equivalent of 20 US dollars to buy a packet of cigarettes in New Zealand. And then you come to Ireland, we're 1650. Now, go down the scale a bit. We go down to, say, Spain, where I lived for a couple of years. And in Spain, like it was just smoking was rampant. Everyone was there. Everyone was at it. Pubs, whereas in Ireland, we had brought in the, uh, the you know, the smoking ban inside pubs and everyone had to stand outside. They were able to kind of opt out in certain circumstances in Spain. But of course, it's only five dollars and 90 cent uh, US dollars and 90 cent for cigarettes the same number of cigarettes in spain so you can buy almost you can buy basically four packets of cigarettes for the same price as they are in australia but then go even further afield to nigeria in west africa and it is less than a dollar for a packet of cigarettes so the cigarettes obviously in ireland they're they're unhealthy and so people have decided that this is an easy target we're going to add 50 cent every year to a packet of cigarettes and so the people who smoke will pay the tax. And if you don't want to pay the tax, well, then don't go and smoke. Simple, simple logic. Now it's starting to apply to car tax. And I just noticed that uh, this is where the sustainability and this whole thing is starting to come in. We're now looking at an emissions tax, a carbon tax of increase of seven euro 50 per ton. And what that is going to equate to is when I fill up my car with diesel, it's going to be about one euro 50 cent more expensive now 
um, as soon as this tax has uh, come in. And I think it actually came in at midnight on the day of the of the budget. So my car tax, uh, my, my car diesel is now 150 more expensive. And so it's, it's, it's in the region of 75 euro or something like that for me to fill up my car. You go to the US and it's, it's a fraction of that. I remember being in the Middle East when I was living in Doha in Qatar. I filled up a car with, with petrol and it, it cost me, I think, like 10, the equivalent of 10 euro to fill the car completely to the brim. And I remember thinking I didn't, I might not have enough change in my pocket. I had like 30 or 40 dollars and I thought, you know, uh, hopefully I'll have enough. And I went in and I was like, what, 10, 10 euro, 10, the equivalent of 10 euro. That was just, it was just amazing. But I don't think that's going to be happening in um, in many of the European countries. I'm not sure about the rest of the world. I mean, the UK, obviously, with Brexit and stuff, they can they can sort of forge their own path. But I do think pretty much everyone is facing the same sort of climate change issues. And so I do think that we can start seeing carbon taxes going up and that is going to start to impact the real estate industry. So. If you've got a house uh, here in Ireland, we have got this thing called the BEOR certificate, which is the building energy rating. And it gives your house a rating. So, if, or it gives pretty much any building in the country a rating. So if you've got a brand new house, the likelihood is you have an A rating. But if you have a 1960s house built in the 1960s, you probably have like a an E or an F or even a G rating, which means that there's absolutely no in insulation and that's a terrible you know waste of money to heat a heat built that building i am expecting that the price of uh, the tax the, the household tax or whatever it is that you have to pay will shoot up for all of those houses at some point in the near future and it'll also be commercial buildings office buildings that do not have all of the sort of uh, sustainability and all that kind of stuff built into it those guys are going to really pay extra and so something that just this is my prediction anyway of what's of what's to come right let's get on to the question from monty now monty is a member of a thing called the tears of freedom program and it's um, one of my friends jason greystone has this program and monty sent me a, a message through that platform so monty's question was gavin myself and a few friends are interested in buying some land and building a house to eventually sell i wanted to ask whether you have much experience in doing this and whether you could point us in the right direction to learn about how to do do this and uh, so monty good great question so the first thing my first bit of advice um is to get an architect and unless you're capable of actually doing the design yourself but even at that you know, do you have the knowledge of all the rules and all that? That is an important aspect of it. I studied architecture and I became an architect and I still hire architects because the laws change, the regulations change all of the time and small little things are become quite important like the, you know, the distances and um, safety measures, all of this stuff. These local rules do make a difference and you might think, oh, sure, I know what I'm doing but you could make a mistake that becomes quite costly. And I've seen that before. I think I mentioned in a previous podcast about the cork board that should have gone down on the floor. It wasn't, and it wouldn't have cost much to put it in, but because the architect hadn't been up, you know, kept up to date on the regulations, he, he decided not to put it in and it ended up costing thousands to put it in afterwards. 
So definitely get yourself an architect and most importantly, a local one if you can, because a lot of the time there are local issues, there are local problems and there are neighborhood issues and there's things like, you know, local community activists and stuff that don't want certain areas being built on. And so it does help to have a local architect who knows his stuff um, for that kind of reason. The scale of your ambition is the next thing because you're going to need permissions and permits and all that kind of stuff. And the architect can help you with all that. But depending on what you want to do, it, it sets the stage for how you go about it. If you just want to build the one house, that can be kind of an expensive way to go about it. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with it. And you can build a house to your exact standards. And, you know, if you want it to be your dream home, there's no better way to do it. I did that myself. I built a couple of houses in the rear garden of a large old house. It was like a hundred year old house with one and a half acres of land. And I got permission to build four houses in the rear garden. And I decided to keep one of these for myself. And because I was doing that, I was able to kind of add a load of extra stuff. So I put in, you know, a basement gym and a wine cellar and I put in an office and kids playroom, walk-in wardrobes. Like I really went crazy. And then I ended up moving to Spain and sold the house. So don't, um, it's probably best not to go crazy on this kind of stuff. Um, but the four houses, the great thing about building those four houses was that the profit from them actually allowed me to have that house pretty much for free. And so I rolled the profit in and I just ended up with that house, owning it outright in my own name. Um, the site is obviously everything. If you're, you know, the, the profit that you're going to make on the deal is essentially set by the cost of the land that you're buying because you can't really make savings on construction. I mean, you can chip away at the edges and stuff, but typically a house, every single house costs you know, within a couple of percent of a percent, you know, uh, the same as every other house. And I mean, now that's a generalization. If you're going to go for a very fancy glass box or something like that, obviously it's going to be more expensive. But if you're looking at, say, your standard houses in, an, in a housing estate, every single house pretty much costs the same price. There might be a small variation between an extra bedroom and things like that. But where the difference is, is it's the, it's the land value. You know, a four-bedroom house in a rural part of town and a, and a four-bedroom house in the fanciest street in, in the city. Those two houses cost the very same to build, but this land might have cost, there might be a million dollars or a million, you know, euro or 10 million. Like, it could be just the land is where all of the difference is made. So bear that in mind. And when you're looking for a house, if you're looking to build just one single house, well, then I would go out and I would have a look for houses with, say, a large rear garden or a large side garden that would actually allow you to carve that off and maybe build a house on that site. I've seen it done a lot and it can be quite successful if you get it for the right price. If you if you overpay, then, I mean, actually, given this, this COVID crisis that we're going into and the, and the distressed prices that I'm kind of half expecting us to see, I would think that it's quite possible that you will actually find one of these opportunities and look for something where there's a possibility to build an additional house. But there are economies of scale if you build a couple of more. And so if you can find a couple of partners, maybe um, a, a bank that's willing to kind of come in with you to help you do it. 
you can definitely make more money or you can you can you can kind of increase your profit you can end up coming close to owning the house outright and just roll your profit in uh, but make sure that you buy the land in your personal name if that's if that's the case i think a couple of episodes back i talked about one of my deals that i did and what we did we were very smart at the outset when we bought the property with the one and a half acres we actually subdivided the land so we actually had our plots of land personally owned by us from the very first day if we hadn't done that then we would have had to buy the house from our company that built the houses and so you need to kind of think about some of these things the next thing is um, do you go with a professional builder or house builder or do you you know there's a contractor or do you try to do this yourself uh, I definitely would avoid, if you're not in any way kind of familiar with the construction process, I would avoid trying to do this yourself. Now, I have seen some fascinating TV programs like, um, what's it called, Grand Designs, and I love that program, I really enjoy it. But you can see the guys that decide that they want to do this themselves. They end up, you know, going two years to, you know, over, um, over schedule, or they end up sort of spending hundreds of thousands more than they because they just totally misunderstood what's involved. So definitely, if you go out and speak to a couple of builders, typically what you do is your architect will draw up construction drawings, and you might have a bill of quantities. Bill of quantities is typically put together by a quantity surveyor, and that's where they measure up the drawings that the architect has done. And they know exactly how many meters of concrete and how many bricks and how many windows. And, and they can kind of give you an approximate price. And then you send that off to, say, four or five different contractors. And the tra- contractors will come back on the same day with the price that they'll tender for that project. And now it can be a problem. I've had a situation where I've selected the lowest tender. And, uh, you know, there might be there might be 100,000 between tenders, depending on what you're building, of course. But usually the quantity survey will tell you the range and it might range between one being the lowest and 1.2 being the highest. So 20 percent more expensive. And um, you might sort of say to yourself, well, that's great. Now I'll just go with the cheapest guy. And I did that on a project and the cheapest guy actually went bankrupt and the contractor went into liquidation. And I ended up having to bring another contractor in to finish the job. And that's a very expensive process when that happens. So you don't necessarily want to choose the cheapest. You just want to make sure that they're good at their job. Make sure that you've got, they've got a good reputation. Go and physically check out their other projects to make sure that they're properly finished and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, some builders have a terrible habit of disappearing off the job to work on another project and... They kind of send men back when you give out to them. But, you know, I've seen these situations where you go out to the site and you're trying to finish the job and there's nobody on site uh, because they're all off on another project. And you really have to kind of pull out your hair trying to get them all back. So you just need to make sure that you do your bit of due diligence on the builder. Um, I mean, I've worked some with some fantastic builders that are just they bend over backwards to kind of please you and make sure that you get it they get your house exactly right but there have been some nightmare scenarios as well the other alternative and this has worked very well for a couple of friends of mine is to join forces with a builder themselves and so if you're say the designer or the architect and you work with a builder 
that can be a very good partnership because you bring one side of the scale and he brings the other and you you both share the benefits um he doesn't charge a, a builder's profit and you don't charge for the design work and things like that i've seen that kind of thing and it works pretty well if you if you're trying to compete with say professional contractor those guys usually add a margin of you know 20 to 30 percent it can be at times on top of their costs so they're buying in you know so many tons of concrete and so many bricks and stuff and they add a, a margin on top of that that you end up paying and so if you are directly building it yourself say if you have that partner as a builder you can save a lot of money on the on the costs um but obviously you have to kind of keep the guy busy and so you need to find other projects and so this can be something that as i talk about you know understanding at the outset what you want to do having this kind of forethought of where your future um what you want to do in the future is that you can sort of find a guy like that nice and early and go and and basically like map out a future with the guy and say all right we're going to try and build ourselves up to doing say 10 houses a year or you know 20 houses i've seen a lot of people doing that they start out very small and they grow huge i mean if you look there's a company called ballymore properties and they are one of the biggest developers in the uk and ireland massive massive company building huge like skyscrapers residential skyscrapers in london and the founder of that company is a guy called sean mulrine and sean started out back in the 70s and 80s he started out as a bricklayer and a stonemason and built he actually sold his his i think he sold their house so that he could get the money for a site and he's i think he sold his wife's car as well there's a great story about it and he did all that so he could get the equity together to buy his first site he built these couple of houses on it and did a beautiful job they sold very well he took the profit he rolled it into the next one and the next one the next one and before long, Sean is now head of the one of the biggest developers in the UK and um, very, very great, you know, just great reputation for the quality of the work and stuff. So you should definitely check out. I'll put a link to Ballymore in the um, in the show notes below. Understanding the process of construction. I've actually had a question about that. And that is something that I don't know of too many websites where they actually teach you about construction it's something that you kind of get from just experience of being out there but it is important to understand the work that goes into building a, a house or a building or anything and this decision making that you need to do in advance stuff that can really impact the cost of the build or the running cost of the financing costs and it isn't it is a complicated job i'll give you a small example when i was a um, when i was a trainee architect i can remember coming up with this great idea for a design for for a small bit of work that I was given and I put this piece of steel in uh, and I thought you know I thought oh that's that steel will hold up that ceiling and we won't have any columns and I can remember the senior architect that I was working with Eugene he was a great guy he came in to me and said you know Gavin I like your idea but um, how how you know how would you put that piece of steel up there and I was kind of saying well you know you just lift it up um, you know you get a couple of guys or whatever and he said, Gavin, a piece of steel that size holding, you know, that distance is going to call, is going to weigh about a ton. You're not going to be able to lift that and you're going to have to get a crane to bring it in. And all of this stuff seems so simple on a piece of drawing. But when you realize that somebody actually has to lift that and put it in place 
and possibly you can't get a crane into that particular location or whatever there's all sorts of complications so it's definitely worth your while getting into construction trying to kind of start to figure out how it works and and learn as much as you can about it and just i'm going to give you a funny anecdote uh, happened to me when i was an architect working on a project uh, for a couple and they were they were doing an extension of their kitchen and their lower basement and i i, I got the job and i was doing this and this lady ordered a, a u.s style fridge and for guys listening in the u.s you just know what a, a u.s fridge is but here in europe we have much narrower fridges so we call these big wide fridges u.s style and um, because they're about 50 percent wider than a than a typical fridge and she ordered this thing and she showed me a photograph of it and um, she said you know we've ordered this for the kitchen will you make sure you design that into into the kitchen design and i said yeah great it looks really nice i said but are you sure it'll actually fit into the house and she was like oh yeah of course it'll fit in and i said are you sure because it's it is 50 percent larger than a typical fridge and you know your front door is made to take the typical fridge so you might want to just check that and she was she didn't want to she did not want to hear this from me she just was like yes of course it'll fit don't be so silly and i can remember then the following week when the fridge arrived and i happened to be there and they couldn't get it through the door and this lady took out her toolkit and she had this chisel and hammer and she was hacking lumps off of her door frame to try to make it wide enough to take this refrigerator that she had ordered without thinking so that's just a very small example it's a very rewarding process to build a home or your own house or even a couple of houses but there is a lot of work to it and so i would definitely um give it some thought before you jump in and uh, just make sure that you're aware of what you're getting involved in so look guys that's it it's um it's a short well i was going to say it's a short episode but i'm looking now it's about 47 minutes long so i guess not um i'm going to read the outro so that's it for episode 26 of behind the facade please check out the show notes for links to the various websites i mentioned today thank you for listening and uh, my number one ask is for you guys to please leave a review if you good if you could just do that now it would be fantastic it really does help with the algorithm just helps the discovery process and gets the uh, podcast out there in front of more people if you have any questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes please join my facebook group behind the facade community and connect with me in there and lastly don't forget to check out my youtube channel prop tech tv where i post a lot of my content so guys I hope you have a great week and I'm going to enjoy my bank holiday Monday when you're all listening to this. So talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.